You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 6, beginning in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is the word of the Lord. You may have heard of a letter that made the rounds some years back, a letter from a college student back home, enough to raise the eyebrows and heart rate of any parent. It says this, Dear mother and father, since I left for college, I've been remiss in writing, and I'm sorry for my thoughtlessness and not having written before. I will bring you up to date now, but before you read on, please sit down. You are not to read any further unless you are sitting down. Well then, I'm getting on pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my dormitory when it caught fire shortly after my arrival here is pretty well healed. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can see almost normally and I only get those sick headaches once a day. Fortunately, The fire in my dormitory and my jump was witnessed by the employee at the gas station near the dorm, and he was the one who called the fire department and the ambulance. He also visited me in the hospital, and since I had nowhere to live because of the burnt-out dormitory, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. It's really more like a basement, but it's cute. He's a very fine boy, and we've fallen deeply in love, and we're planning on getting married. His divorce is final now, and he shares custody of his three children. We haven't set a date yet, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, mom and dad, I am pregnant. I know how much you're looking forward to being grandparents, and I know that you will welcome the baby and give it the same love and devotion and tender care you gave me when I was a child. 
Now that I brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I do not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I am not in the hospital. I am not pregnant. I am not engaged. And there is no boyfriend. However, I am getting a D in history and an F in chemistry. And I just want you to see those grades with the right perspective. <laughs> Your loving daughter, Sharon. Well, it is as if the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to say to us, are you sitting down? Good, because as you face this life on earth, I just want to make sure that you face your hard times and your troubles with the right perspective. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes does not need to exaggerate or embellish to provide us with perspective. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you've been through the journey so far in this church, you will discover very quickly that he tells it like it is. This book helps us to look at life under the sun. It's a phrase repeated often. That is, without the lens of faith, without being too quick to bring God into the picture, which not only helps us to face life realistically, but we actually become appreciative of what we find when we eventually do look above the sun, beyond the way things are with the perspective of God. That is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes does. This ancient Israelite thinker, many believe to be Solomon, he's at least Solomon-esque, as you've been learning over the summer. He was at the center of Israel's religious and civic and political life. And he's making observations about life under the sun with brutal honesty. If this is all there is, if what we see is what we get, this is all vanity. It's chasing after the wind. It's, it's meaningless. It's elusive, at times unjust, and other times downright absurd. Why is the preacher writing in this way? Is he trying to depress us so that we'll give up? I don't think that's the answer. I believe that his philosophy professor, Peter Kreeft, once said, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. Ecclesiastes helps us ask the right questions, the ones that we often avoid and thereby sets us up for the hope that the rest of scripture brings. The preacher is right. If there is vanity in what we're living for, then we should be living for something else, something far better. And this morning we come to a passage that deals with hard times. It deals with adversity. We all face them. What do we need to face them well? This is important because many of us often face our difficulties and struggles with usually one of two options. It's either despair or denial. Or if you're like me, both. For some of you, when something hard happens, you hear the bad news, it's despair. You're like, there's no good that will ever come from this. How often have we been there? But for some of you, it's denial. It's, let's binge watch on Netflix and eat ice cream in the warm Stockton summer as a way of diverting our attention to something else. It's superficial living. We are, as Christians, we're often good at this. How are you this morning? Passing the peace. Are you good? Fine. Blessed. 
when really inside we're dying. While superficial living is one thing the preacher won't let us get away with, we need to face the difficulties of life. But how? Well, there are three things from this quite long passage, which are very simple. Three things that will give us much-needed help for hard times. And they are humility, wisdom, and faith. How do they help us? First of all, humility will give you perspective. It is almost inevitable that when hard times come, when bad things happen, we are quick to jump to the conclusion that there is no good that can come out of this at all whatsoever. We might even jump to conclusions about God himself. Road closure. God hates me. I didn't get the raise in my job. God has abandoned me. My teenage daughter is giving us a very, very difficult time. God is absent. That last part's biographical. That's very true. I have an 18-year-old daughter who just graduated high school in the same week, and though I'm not sentimental in any way, shape, or form, I wept at her graduation. I said, oh, make good choices. God, are you there? Anyone else with older children? We could chat later. We jump to conclusions when we go through difficult times. But why is that? Well, why do we have this knee-jerk reaction? Well, it's this like instant distrust. Something's hard, God is gone. But here, humility is important. The preacher of Ecclesiastes calls us to remember our limitations. Humility comes by remembering that you are a limited, finite creature. Here are the verses of 10, verse 10 and 12 of Ecclesiastes 6 once more. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Friends, two simple reminders when we face hard times, and I don't say this in a preachy way, though I am technically preaching, but the two implications are this. One, you are not God. When difficult times come and we're quick to jump to conclusions, God, you're not there, you don't care, you're abandoned, just remember that we are not God. It says in there in verse 10, everything that's in existence has already been named, meaning that we're not the ones who have come to define life as it is. And if we're living apart from God, we only lose touch with reality. But the second implication is this. We are not God, but we also do not know the future. Do you know the future? I mean, if so, I'd love to chat with you about my teenage daughter. But the truth is we don't. Who knows what will come after them? Don't be so quick to raise the fist to God when things become difficult. Don't be so quick to, to shout to the heavens, although we can bring our lament to God, but in a way with open hands, not with closed fists. Can we tell what's going to happen? Do we know how it's all going to play out? I do mention my oldest daughter because it's fresh in my memory. If you would have told me, she's actually doing really well right now. I'm so thankful because there were many years where it was very, very dark, especially when we were living in London for those 
five years since she went through all those changes. If you told me in the midst of those dark periods that she will be where she is now, I would not have believed you. True story. And so it's good that even though I lamented in those times, I did not jump to conclusions. I didn't know. I don't know how this is going to turn out. This isn't a call to pretend that everything's okay, but it is a call for humility. Do I know how it's going to all plan out? I don't know. See, pride is the opposite. Pride does not acknowledge limitation. Pride does not acknowledge our own frailty. And that is why pride, as Proverbs says, comes before a fall. Humility is not the lesson we want, but it is the lesson that we need. This is not saying that we shouldn't ask our our hard questions to God. The Bible invites us to do that. But that we are not in a position to say we know better or that we could do things better. It keeps us from speculation. And it actually sets us up for the second thing that can help us in hard times. The first is humility. It provides you with perspective. We are not God. We don't know how this is all going to end. But secondly, there's wisdom. What good is wisdom? Wisdom will give you guidance in these hard times. What can be learned within these limitations? Well, apparently a lot. Wisdom recognizes that there is something to be learned in every season of life, especially adversity. And so I I love it. The, The preacher here gives us wisdom, counsel from experience and knowledge that can actually help us in hard times. And while verses 1 to 12 of of chapter 7 seem like random collection of wisdom, I do believe that the overarching theme is hard times. So let's think about this simply. Are you sad? Well, don't divert grief. Digest it. He says there at the beginning, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better, he says in verse 2, to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of of laughter. Now we read that and it's a little striking. How is the day of death better than the day of one's birth? Well, n- notice he's not saying that death is preferred to life, but he is comparing the significance of the day of one's birth to the significance of the day of one's death. Meaning, what happens in between those two events, the day you're born and the day you die, will determine whether or not your life was a precious fragrance. He goes on to talk about a good name. A good name is not secured until you have finished the race. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all whatsoever, even, well, in this year, probably six months, it doesn't take you long to discover that there are many, even Christian leaders, well-known authors who may have had a good name, but it turns out that scandal towards the end of their life tarnished it before they died. It's not just how you start, it's how you finish. That's why we need to digest grief. When hard times come, we need to reflect on our own 
mortality. We need to reflect on our character. We need to reflect on on how we're, we're doing, the choices that we're making now. Because as a word of warning, friends, we don't just look at Christian leaders. I often think this, there's still time for me to ruin my reputation. That's not an encouragement. That's a, that's a warning. Some of you are like, yeah, no, 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 that's, that, that, wasn't a, <laughs> that wasn't a point of a practical application. There's still time to make bad choices. I don't want to make them. At the end of your life, you will leave a reputation. Will it be an example to follow? Or will your life be a cautionary tale? Times of sadness, even times of death, times of mourning, that's how it's good. That's why it's good to go into the house of a funeral than into the latest comedy in the the cinema because you actually reflect on your life. He's not being morbid, nor will he let you just live in like escapism. He's calling us to take life seriously. That's what grief is. That's what lament is. Sorrow has a way of removing superficiality from our lives. And the right kind of grief actually prepares you to receive real joy. It's true. Are you sad? Digest that grief. Don't divert it. Reflect on the lessons for the choices that you're making now. Are you at fault? Well, in that case, Receive correction. Don't reject it. Look, it's never fun to be corrected. How many of you, like, love to be corrected? Like, I mean, I say that. Like, people in the church, they love to correct me. It's like a pastime. Like, oh, I love that sermon, Pastor Tim. But there's just, um, I wrote them down. There's 17 mistakes you made, five grammatical ones, three theological ones. And I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. Could, Could you send that to me in a detailed email with footnotes? I would love that. In my mind, I'm like, who do you think you are? I don't say that out loud, but listen, in verse 5 and 6, it says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Yes, it is hard to hear a rebuke, but it is also healthy to hear a rebuke, particularly from the wise. One of my concerns for myself, and even as we reflect on this for you, is that it may be that some of you have not positioned yourselves in the church to be corrected. Let's be honest, one of the reasons why we don't get involved in church community or we keep people at arm's length is We don't want to give them permission to see and to speak into our lives. And so we keep everyone here. And I've realized in my life, you know, we talk a lot about accountability with like public leaders and all that. What about us? Well, there's two things that will truly keep you accountable. Proximity and permission. You need people who are close to you and you need people who can speak to you. Usually we pick one. You call your friend who lives like in Maine and you're like, I give you permission to speak into my life. Can't wait to talk to you in 2023. Like there's no proximity. You've given them permission, but they literally live thousands of miles away. Like when I was living in London, it did no good for me to be like, I give you permission to somebody back in California. But for other people, they might have proximity. They live in Stockton, but you haven't given them permission. 
You're like, oh, you see my life? That's great. I'll see you pop tickles in the park. See you then. Bye. <laughs> Have you positioned yourself to be corrected? And if so, will you receive that correction? If you don't, the substitute, the preacher says, is like a crackling thorns under a pot. It's just noise. And it evaporates quickly. If you're at fault, receive correction. Don't reject it. Are you angry? Well, if that's the case, develop patience. Don't despise it. He says there in verse 7 to 9, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. See, a great temptation in times of anger or frustration is to take shortcuts, which is why he says, don't give in to bribes. It's just a shortcut. We need to keep the big picture in mind. When we see things going wrong in the world or wrong around us, we need that perspective to help develop patience. The wise may be accused of being cynical in the moment, but the end will show wisdom to be true. So when hard times come, bear it patiently. Wait for the outcome. Don't be so quick to, to harbor anger in your own heart because it's only going to produce foolishness. But maybe, and the last implication under this point, maybe you're just discontent. Well, if that's the case, learn from the past, but do not live in it. I love this verse. Verse 10, say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you say this. See, some of us, when we face hard times, our tendency is towards nostalgia. Why can't it be like it used to be? Remember college? Oh, God, that was the, those were the days. And listen, this can happen in any stage of life. It happens in the church. How many times would I get an email like, Oh, Reality LA, back when I was there, it used to be so much better in 2008. I'm like, are you kidding me? I have the emails from 2008. It was hard. But now it's been a few years, and I'm like, oh, the old times were better. Be honest. Some of you might feel like that in this church. Oh, remember when we had the afternoon service? Oh. The former days. And then maybe you'll have another change or another building. You're like, oh, remember First Press? So much better then. Listen, friends, nostalgia is a dangerous cocktail. And I once heard, I don't know who said it, but it's genius. Nostalgia is the combination of a bad memory and a great imagination. <laughs> right? You have a bad memory, like, oh, it's all a little hazy, but oh, I just remember it being great. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Do not say, the former times, oh, we could just go back. He says, this doesn't come from wisdom. In fact, what you need is wisdom. Wisdom will help you face the present. Learn from the past, yes. Are there elements of the past that you can bring forward? Sure, but do not live in the past. Oh, we used to be a proper family. We used to be a proper church. We used to be a proper country. We used to be a proper world. It's like, okay, but that's not wisdom. You need wisdom. Nostalgia will just keep you from facing what you need to face with wisdom in the present. 
the encouragement of Ecclesiastes is to get wisdom. Even your wealth that you have, he says there, will disappear, but wisdom will remain. Humility will give you perspective in hard times. You're not God. You don't know how it's going to end. Wisdom will give you guidance through these stages of hardship, anger, sadness, disappointment. But if we just end there, though these things are good, at best they are temporary. And so there's something more. And the final thing is faith. And faith will give you hope. Faith will give you hope in hard times. But note from the preacher, it's not a generic faith. It is faith in the sovereignty of God. And so the final verse, 13, he ends by saying, consider the work of God. In the midst of all this, whether you're being corrected, whether you're grieving, whether you're angry, or you're just living in nostalgia, listening to old playlists from 10 years ago, he says, you need faith. You need to look up. But notice, this is not a generic faith. You're like, faith over fear, hashtag. Like, this is not a generic faith. It is a specific faith. And in this context, it is faith in the sovereignty of God. He says, consider. That is, in the midst of this, this hard season, stop and really give your mind to the work of God. Stop and think about it. Who can make straight, he says, what he has made crooked. He says that, of course, because you've learned throughout this book that God, in response to our rebellion and human sin, he gave the world over to crookedness. That's the preacher's word used to describe the world. But even the seasons we experience, the good times and the hard times, the times of prosperity and the times of adversity, they are all allowed by him for reasons that are beyond me. Remember the lesson on humility. For reasons that I don't know, but I need to stop and I need to consider the work of God. And wisdom tells me not to be too quick to jump to conclusions. Remember, you and I, we are limited. We don't know it all, and yet some of us are trying to manage life as if we did know it all. And though the concept of God's sovereignty might to some seem like this cold theological doctrine, it is not if you know the meaning of it. It means that even my hard times are somehow, some way, being used and woven together by God for a purpose that I do not yet see. A story that some of you may have heard of Corrie ten Boom, a Christian woman who actually made it through the, the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, wrote a wonderful book on the sovereignty of God. And she used this image of a tapestry. The tapestry, of course, is beautiful on, on, the on the side you're intended to see, but if you turn it around, you just see all the frayed threads, and you're like, how is this a work of art? But then you turn it back around, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's glorious! Friends, we see the other side of the tapestry and at times it looks messy and we don't always discern the pattern, but one day you will die, you will breathe your last, you will stand before Jesus Christ and if your faith and trust is in Jesus, you will say, God, you did all things well. I will finally one day see the other side of the tapestry and say, that dark season, you were working it for good. This is faith in the sovereignty of God and specifically and lastly, faith in the promise of God. 
Because the preacher ends with a question that only Christ can answer. He says, who can make straight what has been allowed to be made crooked? Well, this is a faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. For only he can straighten out what is made crooked. From the beginning, God has made promises and has kept them. And the greatest promise was the promise of a savior, his own son, who would set things right. Who would set things straight. And so Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus could say that to me and to you with such certainty because he came into a world of suffering, a world of crookedness to bring us comfort by going to the cross to pay for our sin and rising again to give us hope, to make us straight, to set us right. Trust in him today. Our inability to know the future is an invitation to trust in a God who holds the future. Friends, don't be too quick to judge God's fairness and his character based on his circumstance. Only he knows what fruit this season will bring. You can't say what is better in the long run. The end will reveal it. Right now, trust in Jesus. A season of difficulty may be more beneficial or not. A season of adversity may turn out to be more beneficial to you in the long run. So what is making you sad right now? Bring that to Jesus. What is making you angry right now? Bring that to Jesus. What is making you frustrated? Where are you being corrected and rebuked? Bring that to the Lord Jesus. Because our hope does not rest in the denial of bad things, but in the redemption of bad things. We look at Jesus, who came into our world, world of poverty and rejection, and the cross, all to bring us to glory. Only the gospel enables us to be brutally honest about our hardship, but also remarkably hopeful at the same time. Jesus is always with us, even in and especially in our times of adversity. And somehow, some way, he works it for good. So invite him into your hard times, and he will use it for his good purposes. He will set what is crooked straight. Let's pray right now and let us, as we do, be honest before God and honest with ourselves. Father, 